0: This is a Rabble Podcast Network show. New voices in your head. It's radio free radio.
1: Hello and welcome to Alert Radio for people who want to change the world for March 25th, 2010. I'm Jeff Hughes. And
2: I'm Chris Albee.
1: We can be found at canadiandimension.com. On the program today, a discussion with Jeffrey Weber from the University of Regina, and we will be discussing Canada's interest in Honduras and the new government there.
2: And I'll be speaking with Graham Saul, Executive Director of Climate Action Network Canada, and the recent muzzling of Canadian government scientists.
1: Also a conversation with Thomas Woodley. He is president of Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East. And he's going to talk about the government delaying of Dr. Mustafa's Barhouti's visa, which resulted in the cancelling of his visit to Canada.
2: We'll have music is the weapon.
1: The alert headlines.
2: Around the left.
1: So stay tuned for Alert Radio. And here are the alert headlines for March 25, 2010. And here are the alert headlines for March 25, 2010.
2: In the northern Ontario town of Sudbury, over 5,000 people rallied to support the United Steelworkers' Union, who has been on strike for over nine months. The employer, the Brazilian mining conglomerate Vale Inco, has repeatedly asked for further concessions from workers and refused to bargain in good faith with the union. Recently, the chief executive of Vale Inco accused union members of racism for refusing their last contract offer, which was almost unanimously rejected by the Steelworkers' membership. The rally included union representatives from across the world, including Australia, Brazil, Indonesia, and Mozambique. Vailenco operates in all of these countries where they are demanding similar concessions, layoffs, and cutbacks from workers.
1: In a major victory for President Obama and congressional Democrats, the House has approved a landmark measure that would expand health care to over 30 million uninsured Americans while forcing millions to purchase health insurance. The 219 to 212 vote late Sunday night came nearly three months after the Senate's approval of the bill on Christmas Eve. No Republicans voted with the Democratic majority. The House later approved another package of changes that will now face a testy Senate vote before reaching Obama's desk. Although the measure marks the largest expansion of health insurance since the founding of Medicare and Medicaid in the mid-1960s, it's been criticized for further entrenching the for-profit health care system that rations care based on wealth. In a national address, Obama acknowledged the bill falls short of radical reform, but said it marked a victory for the American people.
2: In Israel and the occupied territories, four Palestinian teenagers have been killed and several more wounded in Israeli military attacks on the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. On Saturday, two Palestinians aged 15 and 17 were shot dead near the West Bank city of Nablus. The Israeli military says it fired rubber bullets, but Palestinian doctors say the teens were killed by live ammunition. One of the victims was shot seven times. The killings came shortly after Palestinians held a protest against a Jewish settlement that's been accused of trying to steal a vital Palestinian water well in the village of Iraq Barin.
1: The head of the United Nations has said Israel's blockade of Gaza is causing unacceptable suffering. During a Middle East visit to reinvigorate the peace process, Ban Ki-moon told Gazans that we stand with you as he visited an area damaged by Israel's offensive 14 months ago. The world has condemned Israel's settlement plans in East Jerusalem, he told a news conference. Let us be clear, all settlement activity is illegal anywhere in occupied territory and must be stopped. A day later, as if by way of reply, Benjamin Netanyahu, Israel's Prime Minister, announced that he does not intend to change Israel's policy of construction in East Jerusalem.
2: Afghan President Hamid Karzai met with representatives of a major Taliban-linked insurgent group in a step toward national reconciliation. Officials of the group, whose fighters operate in the east and north of the country, said the delegation brought a 15-point peace plan, which calls for all foreign troops to leave Afghanistan within six months beginning in July, a full year before U.S. President Barack Obama would begin removing U.S. forces. Talking with the Taliban and other insurgent groups is gaining traction in Afghanistan, even as thousands of U.S. and NATO reinforcements are streaming into the country to try and reverse the insurgents' momentum.
1: Greek police fired tear gas to disperse protesters throwing stones and firebombs outside parliament last week as more than 20,000 people marched in Athens to protest against the so-called economic austerity measures that have been implemented by the ruling Socialist Party government to tackle the country's debt. A strike by public and private sector workers has brought the country to a halt numerous times over the past month.
2: On International Water Day, the Council of Canadians has delivered more than 56,000 petitions to Prime Minister Stephen Harper's office today, calling for a national water policy that bans bulk water exports, protects Canada's fresh water resources, and recognizes access to water as a human right. The Council of Canadians is calling for a national water policy that recognizes water as a human right in domestic law, declares surface and groundwater a public trust, and supports the recognition of water as a human right in international law.
1: In El Salvador, hundreds of people gathered in the capital, San Salvador, on Saturday to mark this week's 30th anniversary of the killing of Catholic Archbishop Oscar Arnolfo Romero. The so-called voice of the voiceless, Romero was a prominent advocate for the poor and leading critic of the then U.S.-backed Salvadorian military government. He was killed while delivering mass at a hospital chapel, reportedly on the orders of the U.S.-backed death squad leader.
2: And those are the alert headlines for the week of March 25th, 2010. And now for Around the Left for the week of March 25th, 2010.
1: Rafif Zayada is a Palestinian spoken word artist and activist. She is the winner of the 2007 Mayworks Festival Poetry Face-Off. Rafif's poetry speaks to the struggle of immigrants to make it in Canada and The Politics of Exile. She is performing at Bet Zatoun, 612 Markham Street in Toronto on April 2nd at 8 p.m
2: stand with grassy narrows in a river run in support of their demand for clean water, air and forests that give life to us all. All participants will form a wild river that will flow to Queen's Park to deliver their demands. To join in this creative march and rally, meet at Grange Park in Toronto at noon on April 7th. Indigenous people are invited to wear their regalia. Others are invited to wear blue or dress as their favourite wild creature.
1: The Greater Toronto Workers' Assembly is committed to non-sectarian, anti-capitalist, anti-imperialist and radical anti-oppression politics and to building unity and solidarity amongst the working class. They are holding an assembly on April 18th. The assembly is open to both members and supportive observers. However, only members can vote. To become a member and to find more details about this assembly, go to www.workersassembly.com.
2: In 2008, the photographer Louis Helbig flew across the country in a 1946 antique aircraft. The aerial perspective allowed him to see our country in a unique way, especially the Alberta tar sands. Gallery DK in Toronto is now hosting an exhibition that features the photographs Helbig took of the tar sands. Beautiful destruction, Alberta tar sands aerial photographs, runs until March 28th this weekend at Gallery DK, 1332 Queen Street in Toronto.
1: Not in our name. Jewish Voices Opposing Zionism is hosting a public forum dispelling the myths of progressive Zionism. The panel includes Dana Alwyn of Solidarity for Palestinian Human Rights Kingston and Catherine Nastovsky of Labour for Palestine Toronto. Herman Rosenfeld will be the moderator for the evening. The forum is held in room 5-260 at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education at the University of Toronto on March 26th at 7.30 p.m.
2: And that's Around the Left for the week of March 25th, 2010.
3: Alert Radio is the official podcast of Canada's leading progressive political magazine, Canadian Dimension.
4: If you'd like to order a subscription to Canadian Dimension, go to our website at canadiandimension.com or pick up our latest issue on newsstands today.
1: This is Alert Radio for people who want to change the world. We're at canadiandimension.com. Last June saw a military coup against the moderately left-leaning president of Honduras, Manuel Zelaya. Porfirio Pepe Lobo took over as the new president and was confirmed as president in what many critics believe to have been a fraudulent election held in November. Canada's Harper government was one of the first to recognize the Lobo regime. What are Canada's interests in Honduras? To answer that question, Alert Radio has contacted Professor Jeffrey Weber of the University of Regina Political Science Department and an expert on Latin American politics. Welcome to Alert Radio, Professor Weber. Uh,
5: Thank you very much for having me.
1: Thank you for joining us. Last month, Peter Kent, Canada's Minister of State for the Americas, returned from a three-day trip to Honduras. What was his purpose in traveling there?
5: His purpose was essentially to provide a legitimation for the new government of Porfirio Pepe Lobo, uh, who came into uh, office uh, January 27th after, as you said, the fraudulent elections of November 29th of last year. And Peter Kent essentially went down um, to in an attempt to uh, convey an image of uh, legitimacy to this government so that it will be reincorporated into the Organization of American States, the OAS, and other uh international and regional uh bodies and um, basically to develop uh, a recognition of this government as a supposedly democratic government because the Canadian government uh although in effect it supported the uh previous Micheletti coupist regime up until the November 29th uh, elections in practice preventing Salaya's return at every at every uh opportunity uh, its official position was opposition to the coup um, of, of uh, June 28, 2009. So what Canada is trying to do is trying to suggest that the elections were legitimate that were occur- that occurred in November, and that the Canadian government and the rest of the governments of the Western Hemisphere ought to now be comfortable in recognizing the new uh, regime, although, as you suggested uh The Honduran uh, popular movements see it quite differently as a continuation and consolidation of the original coup.
1: Well, upon his return, Kent issued a statement full of praise for the Lobo government. He said, and I quote... The Lobo government is taking crucial steps towards healing the wounds created by recent political impasse, steps which will allow Honduras to regain a sense of trust in their country's democratic institutions, end quote. Is that a fair assessment of the Lobo government's first six months in office? What's your opinion, Jeffrey Weber?
5: Um, I, I don't think you could invent a more dishonest. Uh, depiction of the local government and its steps towards so-called national reconciliation. If Kent had bothered uh, to uh, meet with the principal human rights organization established in the 1980s in the country, the Committee of Family Members of the Disappeared of Honduras, or COFADE, uh, for its uh, acronym in Spanish, he would have learned that even in the uh, very few days leading up to his um, uh, to Kent's visit uh, and in the days immediately following uh, his visit, uh, a number of uh, the latest assassinations, paramilitary assassinations of resistance leaders uh, occurred. Uh, and this was on top of uh, an assessment by Kofade, the human rights organization that by the end of February between June twenty-eighth, two 2009 when the coup occurred until the end of February 2010, uh, 43 uh, people had been assassinated who were uh, known members of the resistance. Now, Kofate recognizes, acknowledges that this is a, by uh, all means, an underestimate of the actual number killed because of the extreme pressures by family members and community, community members not to uh, go public with uh, people who have been assassinated. And the mainstream press, which is uh, principally uh, backing the coup in Honduras, reports Uh, the murders that go on uh, daily, the assassinations by paramilitaries, as uh, so-called gang killings. Now, the Front, the National Resistance Front, puts the figure by the end of February 2010, the figure of those assassinated, at close to 140. So uh, the idea that uh, Pepe Lobo uh, government is somehow uh, reestablishing democratic institutions uh, belies all facts on the ground.
1: Well then, tell us, Professor Jeffrey Weber, what are Canada's interests in Honduras and in the region altogether?
5: Well, Canada has basically two uh, interests, um, to put it in, uh, in, in sort of simpler terms. Basically, you have, on the one hand, geopolitical interests, and on the other hand, uh, economic interests, which obviously overlap, but the greater geopolitical interests of the entire region has to do with the Canadian government's response to the leftward shift that we've been witnessing uh, since about 1998 when Hugo Chavez was first elected in 1998. And after him, you saw a series of mass extra-parliamentary mobilizations which overthrew heads of state in places like Argentina, Bolivia, Ecuador, and then a whole series of center-left and left regimes uh, coming to office through elections. Now, Canada was concerned with this geopolitically, Uh, because of its underlying economic interests in the region, which have uh, dramatically increased in the extractive resource industries, principally mining, but also oil, also uh, outside of the extractive industry sector in finance uh, uh, and various other uh, industries uh, and economic sectors. Uh, And so, especially under the Stephen Harper government, but this was also true under previous liberal governments, there has been a reorientation in Canadian interest towards Latin America and the Caribbean, to defend uh, mining interests, Canadian mining capital, and Canadian uh, economic capitalist interests in general. And so these two things, these two um, uh, spheres, geopolitics and economics, uh, uh, the defense of Canadian capital in the region are coinciding. And so the strategy um, in general terms across the region has been for the Canadian government to align itself with the far-right regimes of, Uh, Alvaro Uribe in Colombia, for example, were just tabling legislation last week uh, to continue uh, forward with the Colombia-Canada Free Trade Agreement with no word uttered of the uh, infamous uh, and notoriously uh, bad uh, human rights record in that country and the paramilitary links between Alvaro Uribe's government and uh, and the paramilitaries. Uh, You see Canada's alignment with Peru, another far-right administration with Mexico, and now with Sebastian Piñera uh, just coming to office uh, on a far-right ticket in Chile. In addition, you have uh, Canada pragmatically aligning itself with a number of these center-left regimes, particularly those in Uruguay under Mujica, in uh, uh, Kirchner in Argentina, uh, Funes in El Salvador, uh, and, a, and a series of in Guatemala and a series of other countries. The idea there is to pit these center-left regimes through uh, co-optation and negotiation against relatively more independent states that have arisen uh, uh, further to the left, although not without their own contradictions, Venezuela, Ecuador, uh, Bolivia, and Cuba in particular. And so that's the general geopolitical panorama. In the Honduras case, Honduras, uh, under normal circumstances, uh, is seen as sort of a a country that can be written off—it's—it's a—it's a very small country, uh, uh, very geopolitically unimportant in in various uh, historical epochs of the last two centuries. But what we've seen, just as we saw in the 1980s when the Central American guerrilla insurgencies arose and the counterinsurgent campaigns by Reagan uh, and so on occurred, Honduras basically became a launching pad for counterrevolution, counterreform throughout. The, the country, uh, against El Salvador's guerrillas, against the Nicaraguan Revolution under the Sandinistas, and so on and so forth. In the current period, uh, Manuel Zelaya uh, came to office, uh, it should be noted, as part of the uh, traditional, traditionally oligarchic party, the Liberal Party, but as a sort of populist, center-leftist faction within that party. And he introduced a series of modest uh, reforms, such as a 60% uh, increase in the minimum wage, uh, he restricted mining exploration, which was crucial for Canadian capital. He increased uh, uh, free school enrollment, subsidized gas, and most importantly, he aligned himself uh, to Venezuela uh, under Hugo Chavez through the Bolivarian Alternative for the Americas. So this was seen both by the domestic Honduran elite as an alignment of Honduras with increasingly with the far left of the wider left turn in the region. And this was a concern not only for the domestic elite but also for uh, American and Canadian imperialism. In the Canadian case, uh, specifically to protect their mining interests. Canada is the biggest mining investor in the region, as uh, Graham Russell undoubtedly pointed out in a previous edition of the show.
1: That's right. I would like to actually ask you to name some names, and what are these resources? Uh, Jeffrey Weber, you are uh, a professor at the University of Regina. Tell us about the mining in Honduras.
5: The biggest, uh, the biggest potential uh... is is really what we're seeing not operative mines are actually quite minimal at the moment um, what because of various restrictions that they introduced so what canadian capital is really gearing up for is the new round of concessions uh... to take place uh... at the opening up the freeing up uh, of a new mining law under pepe lobo and this was introduced the idea that he was going to introduce this law was was uh, suggested by the pepe lobo government um, very early on uh, in his administration, uh, about two months ago, and so the plans are underway. And Canadian uh, uh, mining capital uh, already held further, con- uh, earlier concessions, particularly the uh, the company Gold Core, um but also other companies uh, in the in the region, um, and often acting under names uh, that uh, of subsidiaries. So they have Honduran names, but are connected ultimately to Canadian capital as their parent owners. And those Canadian companies work through uh, the Honduran Mining Association uh, to protect their interests. And when they do so, they act under the names of their, of their Honduran names, so that you, you really have to investigate how this is traced back to Canadian capital. But it undoubtedly is, as, for example, uh, uh, Carlos Amador, one of the principal environmental activists uh, that I had the opportunity to speak with, with my colleague Todd Gordon when we were in Honduras, in uh in the late january 2000 uh, 2010 excuse me uh we talked to him and he talked about the operations of gold core in the community of it's called Bale de Siria, uh in which uh, uh tremendous uh, environmental um, devastation is happening tremendous uh community destruction uh, dispossession of peasant land and so on all these sorts of operations to extract mineral wealth and uh potential mineral wealth throughout um, so um, really, it's, a, it's Canada, a Canadian state and Canadian capital are trying to position themselves to best reap the benefits of the forthcoming uh, mining law under the Pepe Global government.
1: Finally, so that's Jeffrey, really what they're trying to do. Finally, Jeffrey Weber, I'd like to ask you, are there signs of resistance in Honduras, and what can we expect in the months ahead?
5: There certainly are signs of uh, resistance under uh, extraordinarily difficult uh, trying circumstances, as I suggested uh, uh, severe paramilitary repression. So we saw uh, throughout the first seven months uh, of the of the coup regime, uh, daily protests and so on, uh, by hundreds of thousands uh, at the peak at the peak uh, protest periods um, to try and reinstate uh, Manuel Zelaya and to institute a constituent assembly to remake uh, the foundations of the country under uh, more just uh, uh, more just lines, economically, socially, anti-racist. Uh, feminist liberation, and so on. Um, when I was uh, had the opportunity to visit uh, Honduras at the end of January, uh, January 27th was the day that Pepe Lobo was being uh, inaugurated. He was uh, elected in November, but he was inaugurated uh, at the end of January 2010. And so on January 27th, there was a massive uh, uh, resistance march that I participated uh, in and interviewed several leading peasants, trade union, uh, and other Indigenous activists uh, at the forefront of the national resistance movement, and uh, it was estimated. Uh, obviously, claims about the numbers vary, but a midway number um, between uh, official numbers and between the uh, largest uh, numbers of the resistance put the uh, put the march at around 300,000 people. It was extraordinary. Uh, uh, along the way, there was heavily militarized. Uh, you could I've taken photos of the. Uh, sharpshooters dressed in black, who were aligned uh, lined up on the uh, uh, adjacent uh, building tops uh, uh, along the march, and so on. So it was uh, these people were t- tremendously brave to participate and to uh, go forward with their demands in this way. More recently, uh, you've seen a reorientation, an attempt to regroup the uh, national resistance front to confront this sort of new era of uh, Pepe Lobo. Uh, and the consolidation of of the coup under a democratic guise with the acceptance of this new government by Canada, the United States, the European Union, and so on, uh, along with some right-wing Latin American states. And so what you've seen is, uh, most recently, between March 13th and March 14th, a a gathering in uh, a town called La Esperanza uh, in in Honduras, where over 1,000 delegates from Uh, feminist movements, from revolutionary left movements, from indigenous liberation movements, from the uh, Garifuna Afro-Honduran indigenous movement, uh, from uh, the gay and lesbian and transvestite rights movement, all sorts of uh, different currents within the popular movement gathering together uh, to coordinate a strategy of resistance in this new uh, period to confront the Pepe Lobo regime. And their principal demands really are to institute a constituent Assembly to remake and refound uh, the entire country on a on a on a more just social order, and uh, a, a very important tactical measure that they're gearing up for is on June 28th of, of this year, uh, so one year after the uh, anniversary of the initial coup, they are holding a uh, a uh, a poll of the the resistance is coordinating a poll of the Honduran populace to see uh, to measure popular support. For a constituent assembly, and they and they're hoping that this will generate uh, uh, pressure on the Pepe Lobo regime to uh, recognize that it's not the legitimate; it has no legitimate democratic mandate uh, from the people. It was it was came to power in a fraudulent election, in which there was no anti-coup uh, candidate, in which the OAS, the European Union, and others refused to send official observers, in which there was paramilitary terrorization of the populace, in which. The turnout was grossly inflated.
1: Professor Weber, we're going to have to leave it there, but thank you so much for taking the time to join us on Alert Radio this afternoon.
5: Thank you very much for having
1: me. Thank you.
2: Several Canadian newspapers reported that for more than two years, climate scientists working for the federal government have had to get formal permission from their political bosses before speaking to reporters. A leaked Environment Canada document released by Climate Action Network Canada says that the policy has resulted in an over 80% decline in media coverage of climate change science because reporters who often have same-day deadlines cannot wait for the political bureaucrats to give approval. We have with us, from his office in Ottawa, the Executive Director of Climate Action Network, Graham Saul. Graham, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. In your public statement, you accuse the Harper government, Graham, of muzzling scientists. Why do you think the Harper administration introduced this policy?
4: Well, I mean, the report that we released um, uh, identifies a variety of different ways in which the government is taking, taking measures. Uh, that effectively muzzle its own climate change scientists or undermine climate change research in the country i would argue there's a broad pattern um that uh, this government has displayed um that's That suggests a certain hostility to the concept of taking action on climate change. We've seen it in terms of the refusal to move forward with holding industry accountable for its greenhouse gas emissions by imposing some kind of industrial regulations. We've seen it in the government's refusal to make meaningful investments in clean energy jobs. And, and position Canada uh, to be a leader in the clean energy economy of, uh, of the 21st century. And now we're seeing evidence that Canada, or this, this particular government at a federal level, is also significantly scaling back or undermining very important climate change research that uh, that its own scientists conduct and and um, and that other Canadian scientists conduct in Canada.
2: Okay, so can you tell us, Graham, how the muzzling works exactly then?
4: Yeah, I mean, it plays out in a variety of different ways. So one of the things the report talks about is the government had invested a very substantial amount of money in um, in doing important pieces of research, and then rather than get it out there in, in in at a particular time in a way that's designed to seek coverage, they release it kind of late at night on a Friday to very little fanfare. Um, but the but the particular uh, document that you referred to in terms of the the leaking of the report, what the government basically did is they brought in a new media relations strategy where they required all of their own Environment Canada scientists to run all requests for media interviews through the media relations department and what they found is that the media relations department was actually not responding in many cases in many cases it was denying um, environment Canada scientists uh, approval to do the interviews in many cases they were requesting very detailed written responses in advance or running those written responses through various levels of management, and either through the denial of permission to do the interviews or through the amount of time that it was taking to get back to the media, what they saw was, as you mentioned, a dramatic decline in the number of uh, Environment Canada scientists that were that were uh, being referenced in the media about their spe- spe- specific level area of expertise.
2: So, can you give us a particular example of the media doing this in one in in an instance, or is there a particular example? Well, I mean,
4: one of the things the document talks about is they look at six key spokespeople reported um, who are Environment Canada uh, spokespeople in terms of uh, scientific issues related to climate change, and those six people forwarded about 30 requests for science interviews to the Media Relations Department during the period that was studied, and the approval to proceed was only granted in 20% of those cases. Okay. So while the report doesn't list um, specific, um, specific cases, exactly what it looks at is trends in the way the, the, the policy was implemented.
2: And so let's uh, talk a little bit about governments. We have the Harper government doing this muzzling of scientists, mm-hmm. Are there other governments that you know are following this practice?
4: Well, certainly, the Bush administration was very active in taking a very heavy hand in editing a lot of the um, a lot of the climate science. Uh, there were there were a number of scandals where White House officials who had been formerly um, employed by major oil companies were involved in quite actively editing documents that were effectively scientific documents, and the Bush administration tried very hard to. Uh, to muzzle some of um nasa's leading scientists most notably james hansen um, from being from being outspoken and they succeeded to varying degrees but with the bush administration gone to be honest uh, canada is the only country i can think of um where you have an existing capacity to engage in cutting-edge science um and you have a history of canadian scientists being actively involved both domestically and in the world stage in producing in producing quality climate change research and yet you have a government that is actively muzzling those scientists that is that is quietly releasing rather than promoting their research and as the report that we released the other day shows um that is also gradually scaling back and in fact eliminating funding for some of the most important climate science that's happening in canada today
2: okay so quickly uh we have about two questions left uh what are the scientists saying about it
4: the scientists are really frustrated. They feel like the policy was designed to prevent them from speaking to the media. They've lost confidence in the ability of the system to meet the needs of the media, and in some cases, they've started referring calls to other people rather than fielding them themselves. And they feel that the policy basically questions their professionalism and their scientific expertise. So the report clearly shows that can, that Environment Canada scientists feel that this is a direct attack in in some sense on their professionalism.
2: Okay, so 30 seconds left, Graham. What do you think are the overall consequences?
4: I think we're going to lose some of Canada's best scientists to places like the United States and Europe where they're putting real money into climate science. And I think Canadians will be less informed about the impacts of climate change in the country. And ultimately, this is produced so that we can figure out how to deal with the problem. And if we're not getting the information we need, we're not going to be as effective at dealing with the problem, and people and ecosystems are going to suffer as a result.
2: Thank you so much, Graham, for uh, your insight into this, and we'll look to see what happens in the future.
4: Thank you very much.
2: Thanks, Graham. And that was Graham Saul, Executive Director of Climate Action Network in Ottawa.
1: This is Alert Radio. We're found at Canadiandimension.com. This week, Dr. Mustafa Barhouti was to conduct a much-anticipated three-city tour of Canada. Dr. Barhouti is a 2010 Nobel Peace Prize nominee and prominent Palestinian leader. The trip had to be cancelled because of delays by the Harper administration in delivering his visa. His appearance at the University of Toronto Saturday had been sold out and Barhouti was scheduled to meet with senior members of all three opposition parties on Monday. To explain these events and what they imply about Canada's foreign policy, we have with us on the phone from his Montreal office, Mr. Thomas Woodley, President of Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East, the organization that was to host Dr. Barhouti's visit. Welcome, Mr. Woodley, to Alert Radio. Well,
6: Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Thank you for joining us. What do you think lies behind this failure to get a visa to Dr. Barhouti in time to enable him to make this tour of Canada?
6: Well, from our perspective, there was there was clearly uh, some delaying on the part of the Canadian government. Um, uh the Dr. Baruti had applied for his visa uh, on March 5th. He was due to travel on March 18th. Uh in the past, he has received a visa to Canada in as quickly as 24 hours. It's never taken more than a few days. So uh, when uh, when the date of his travel was uh, was approaching he started to get concerned and he he alerted us uh the 3 days before he was to travel to say to us that uh you know he still hadn't received his visa and asked us if we could get involved and indeed we did that was a uh, the Tuesday uh, uh, a week ago today and uh, he uh for 3 days we worked very hard so from that Tuesday 3 days prior to his travel the Department of Foreign Affairs and Citizenship and Immigration was made aware of the fact that he was a VIP, a Palestinian legislator, and and that he needed to have his visa by Thursday afternoon to be able to make his engagements uh, here in Canada. And uh, yet the Canadian government uh, delayed, and uh, I can tell you a little bit more if you have more specific questions, uh, to the point where they issued his visa late Friday night Ramallah time. Uh, which meant ultimately that with the flights that he was missing and the the lack of availability of subsequent flights, that the earliest he could arrive would be early the following week, the Monday, which meant that he had missed already three-quarters of his tour.
1: Well, tell us about Dr. Mustafa Barhouti. Why did you invite him specifically to Canada?
6: Yeah, well, he's really a a fascinating and inspiring, I think, uh, uh, political figure uh, among the palestinians he's an independent so he's neither uh... of fatah or hamas uh... he has even before becoming a politician he really has a uh, uh... a spotless record in terms of uh... the type of work that he's been trying to conduct in in the occupied palestinian territories he's a doctor by trade a medical doctor by trade and has uh, founded several different ngos some of them uh, some of them health related health 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 care related and, and others more uh, politically related uh the most important one perhaps that he might be known for is the Palestinian National Inis- Initiative I believe it's called uh which he founded uh, with Edward Said the late Edward Said and a few others which actually specifically calls for uh, an independent approach a non-violent approach to to peace uh in in the Middle East and uh a lot of people really liked what he had to say and in the uh 2006 elections he ran as an independent and was elected to the Palestinian legislature. Uh, actually in 2005 he had run for the presidency of the Palestinian Authority and received 20 percent of the vote. So this is clearly someone who I think has, has presence within the occupied Palestinian territories uh, and also has very strong potentials in terms of nonviolence and, and peace-seeking and uh, sort of a, 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 a very balanced rational approach to the political situation in the Middle East. What do you
1: think might have been accomplished by Dr. Barhouti's tour had he been granted his visa in time to uh, meet his engagements?
6: Yeah. As Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East, our mission is to empower Canadians of all backgrounds to promote justice, development and peace in the Middle East and here at home in Canada. So one of the things that we try to do with our speaking tours is uh, first and foremost to sensitize the Canadian public to to new viewpoints that they might not otherwise be exposed to so obviously first and foremost the the series of public events that we had scheduled for toronto ottawa and montreal were you know to enable hundreds of hundreds of people to sort of hear hear his message and hear his take on palestinian politics and and what would be required uh... for for real peace on the ground Uh, in addition to that of course there's there's other layers of course to in you know promoting justice development and, and peace in the Middle East, and there's obviously the, the political aspect of it. And over the years, we've, we've had the opportunity to develop relationships with, with a number of uh, individuals in Ottawa, and, and so we were, in fact, able to work with... Uh, the, well, we actually, we tried to work with all four of the parties with MPs in power, with, with MPs in office in Ottawa, and uh, the Liberals, the NDP, and the Bloc Québécois, all of them uh, granted us appointments with relatively... Uh, high ranking members in the party, for instance, the NDP, uh, Mr. Layton and Paul Dewar, the NDP foreign affairs critic, were to meet with Mr. Uh, Dr. Bahouti, the Bloc Québécois, Similarly, the leader of the party, Lucep, as well as Francine Lalonde, the foreign affairs critic, were to meet with, uh, with Dr. Barhuti. and, uh, among the liberals, we had, uh, Bob Ray, who had uh, an appointment scheduled with Dr. Bahouti. We off- also offered, uh, we-, we sought an appointment with, uh, with Conservative uh, Foreign Affairs Minister Lawrence Cannon, as well as Deputy Minister uh, Peter Kent, and yet both of them uh, claimed that they were not available that day, Monday.
1: This is Alert Radio. We're at canadiandimension.com. I'm Jeff Hughes, and I'm speaking to Mr. Thomas Woodley. He is the president of Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East, and we're discussing the denial of a visa to Dr. Mustafa Barhouti. What do you think are the implications of this decision to deny him the opportunity to speak in Canada?
6: Well, I think it's 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 I think part of a, a broader picture that probably many Canadians are aware of, where the the, the current uh, Tory government seems to seems to try to deter voices with which it doesn't agree with, tries to sort of prevent those voices from from having a platform or or being able to speak out. Uh, many 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 of your listeners may know that you know several other people have been den- denied. Uh, visas or denied access to to Canada uh, perhaps most famously was George galloway last year a british uh, m p who wanted to come to Canada to do a speaking tour but but the smaller figures as well amy Goodman apparently was denied Medea Benjamin of code pink has been denied and and there's there 's quite a list of people who've been denied entry in into Canada, so we sort of see this as as a as a as part of that broader picture, yet we see this also as as part of a uh i think a more subtle attempt i, I don't think i think that the the Tory government really would have looked quite bad if they had outright denied his visa uh so <laughs> what they did they they delayed it until the, the the last possible moment so that they could say that they gave it but in fact to, to actually they would entirely derail the the tour that that had been planned and so we see see that in 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 this context now w- i think one of the unfortunate things in this is you know i think in in canada a, a value that Canadians hold dear is the, is the value of, of course, free speech, the, the, the principle of free speech of, of being able to, to, you know, hear, uh, opposing viewpoints, diverse viewpoints. And, and sometimes people sort of think, well, okay, I want free speech, speech for myself, but I, I'm not so keen about the other guy having free speech. And of course, the, if, if one is uncomfortable with the free speech which is being spoken, the antidote really is more free speech. Uh, so I, I think rather than there sort of being a clamping down or, or a, prevention or an outlawing of certain viewpoints, rather the, the real solution to this is, is to to go out there with other viewpoints uh, and, and, and just have more free speech. Uh, so I sort of see this particular incident, which we, which we were faced with last week, as being part of sort of the, the broader uh, Tory uh, approach to sort of clamp down or prevent or obstruct Uh, viewpoints that the government disagrees with.
1: Finally, Mr. Thomas Woodley, I'd like to ask you if you have any plans to reschedule the tour of Dr. Mustafa Bahuti.
6: Absolutely we do. Uh, Ultimately, the visa that he received was a three-month visa, uh, so he has three months to use it, and and that was sort of part of the reason we also made the call that we did. We realized, you know what, rather than sort of have a half-baked tour where we missed, you know, 75% of the events that we had planned, let's do Let's do a, uh, a full tour and really give this gentleman his due and really enable Canadians to hear him uh, at his fullest and in as many opportunities as possible. So indeed, we are planning on having him come. The dates aren't final, but it will be later this spring. Obviously, it has to be in the next three months. But certainly, well. we will have him. I'm not sure we'll be able to bring him out to Winnipeg. It would, be, it would depend a little bit on the, on his own availability. The, the the limit to the three cities uh, in it with his visit plan this past weekend was actually based on his own time constraints. Uh, But we will actually obviously welcome him for as long as he can possibly stay here in Canada.
1: Thomas Woodley, President of Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East, thank you for joining us on Alert Radio.
6: My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Take care.
0: Hi, this is Mitch Podolik, and this is Music is a Weapon. And to start, here is a hell of a good weapon. Here is Taj Mahal with Bourgeois Blues. This is a
7: song and a story about the bourgeois blues, about bourgeois people in a bourgeois town. Listen, here, people, listen to me. Don't try to find no home down in Washington, D.C., because it's a bourgeois town. Tempt was town. I was no judge, out, Chuck a black man of nickel, just a sin scraping by. Lord, in that bourgeois right town, in that bourgeois right town, I got the bourgeois blues, that's the news all around. Me and my sweet white Marthy, we were standing upstairs, and a white man said, Don't want no black ones up there. He was that bourgeois man.
0: That was Taj Mahal singing Udi Ledbetter's Bourgeois Blues. Bourgeois Blues. Hey, Udi Ledbetter went to Washington D.C. in the '40s, and he tried to get a place, and he had just and he couldn't. They wouldn't. No one would rent to him because he was a black man, and uh, he had just come around uh, the far left. He'd met Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie, and he'd learned the word bourgeois, and boy, did he apply it right. Walt Whitman. Walt Whitman is uh, probably my favorite poet i guess and uh, i was looking uh, i was looking through song for myself and i found these lovely words and they're the introduction to the next the next tune i think i could turn and live with animals they are so placid and self-contained i stand and look at them long and long they do not sweat and whine about their condition they do not lie awake in the dark and weep for their sins They do not make me sick discussing their duty to God. Not one is dissatisfied, not one is demented with the mania of owning things. Not one kneels to another, nor to his kind that lived thousands of years ago. Not one is respectable or unhappy over the whole earth.
8: Down on the farm, we had a pig, J. Edgar was his name. we eat up all our victuals and start back up again. Just like the vacuum cleaners they sell down in the lane. Well, that's how J. Edgar Hoover got his name. Now, Mama baked a cherry pie and set it out to coo. So we'd have something good to eat when we got home from school. J. Edgar climbed up on the porch and ate up all that pie. When we got home that morning, we heard our mama cry. J. Edgar, J. Edgar, just look what you've done. You ate up the cherry pie that was for everyone. We made it through the dusters and the hoppers too, but Nothing safe from me. We had an extra man named Bobby. Wouldn't work a day. He drank bad moonshine liquor and it always made him sick. We rode to church on Sunday and stayed a while in town. For a time poor Bob could not be found. He wasn't in the parlor and he wasn't in the lane, drinking in the pantry or sleeping in the hay. His hat was in the pig pen that he always Anymore, J. Edgar, J. Edgar, it just don't seem bad. You ate Bob the hired man while we were at prayer. Let's say prayer for poor old Bob and our country, too. God help us, J. Edgar, Nobody safe from you.
3: in contemplation of the human situation, I often feel a certain sense of pride. For our achievements are many and mighty, and the evidence cannot be denied. But my reverie is shaken, cause my thoughts are always taken to a tragedy that happened long ago. When they're moved through the land Beings awesome and grand The fabulous dinosaurs They were creatures in a manner quite reptilian In their unique and stylish way And their numbers could be reckoned in the millions But there are zero of these heroes in the world today They had music, art, and fashion there was dinosauric passion and I think they'd be enraged and mortified that when they're mentioned today it's only to say their brains were small and they died. Some asteroid that Mother Earth could not avoid became the agent of their premature demise. Well, I understand these things can happen, so who are we to criticize when we'll pay most any price to have the ultimate device that will ensure the perfect global suicide? I would venture instead that the humanoid head is where the tinier brain resides. When we're gone, our works will start to crumble Till nothing can be found In ten million years, some other guys may stumble On our passes, then some fellow will begin to expound In a scientific study to his cockroach science buddies How the evidence can never be denied They were big, dumb, and slow They couldn't go with their brains were small and they died. Their
0: brains were small and they died. That was Cindy Manson from Chicago, Illinois, singing Their Brains Were Small and They Died. And before that was Rye Cooter singing J. Edgar. Talking about Rye Cooter. He is absolutely, without a doubt, my favorite musician anywhere, at any time. He's certainly been one of the most prolific musicians. Uh, and the most interesting thing is how he approaches different genres of music everything from Kohanto music to blues to old time music. He is an absolute ace at almost anything he tries. The most interesting thing is he's a political guy, and if you go through his collection of uh, songs, Every once in a while you find an old gem. And this morning when I was looking for songs for the show I found an old a version an updated version of Miner's Lifeguard and he calls it Strike. <laughs>
8: I got off the train one evening in a little mining town. I started walking up the main street when the sun was going down. When I heard some voices singing, so I see what for it might just be a birthday party and it might be room for just one more but it was mine. All strike for decent pay, and they sang about their struggle and their spirit. came running. They came running everywhere. They broke up at miners' meeting and they carried everything on the gym. But the miners kept Judge of the police cat What's that red cat doing here? Get all the red off the streets, sir. Was your orders loud and clear? Now they turn me out of the jailhouse back. Sing that minor songs again
0: That was Rye Cooter with an updated version of Miner's Lifeguard called Strike. This is Mitch Podolik, this is Music is a Weapon, and we'll see you next week.
1: Well, that is it for Alert Radio for March twenty 2010. I'm Jeff Hughes.
2: And I'm Chris Albee.
1: Remember, you can find us at CanadianDimension.com, and we hope that you'll join us again next week. See you then. Our thanks as usual. To executive producer and publisher of Canadian Dimension magazine, Saigonic.
2: And Tommy Allen, senior technical producer.
1: Our intern technician, Selena Serbinuk. Our alert headline writer, Chris Webb. Around the Left in Seven Days comes to us from Ben Wood. And of course, Mitch Podolik with Music is the Weapon. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension magazine.
2: And you can hear it in 12 cities across the country in community and campus radio stations. You can also log on to rabble.ca or canadiandimension.com. And if you'd like to send us your ideas, comments or suggestions, we'd love to hear from
5: you. Email us at alert at canadiandimension.com.